Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know from our beloved website, HowStuffWorks.com. That's right. We work for a website. <laughs> Did you know that? Yeah, you know, when people ask me what I do, like, I don't know, I met some friend of Emily's the other day, and she's like, what do you do? I always just say, I work for a website. Do you? And only it starts in on stuff, I'm just like, no, I'm just, I work for a website. Gotcha. It's just easy that way. N- not only do you work for it, you are the website is what you should say. I have lobbied for Chuck, how Chuck com, but... <laughs> people would sign on to that, man. Uh, Yeah. This would have been a much better way to start out the future of the internet one, huh? Yeah, probably so. Instead, we're going to go back, way back, Chuck. Back in time. Um, Was that Huey Lewis? Sort of. <laughs> he's playing tomorrow night or tonight. Where? Uh, I think he's doing Chastain. He's doing like, you know, the Memphis, uh, Stax Music, Memphis Soul show. What? Along with your favorite Huey Lewis classics. What? <laughs> I did not know this. How did you not tell me this? I didn't know. Would you be seriously one of the guys? I would totally go see Huey Lewis. Dude, have you ever heard sports? Yeah, I had sports when I was one of the greatest albums ever released. Uh, It was one of the the top albums of that year. From beginning to finish, that was a great album. Anyway, yes, I would see Huey Lewis, and now I have to figure out how to get there in a few hours. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if it's tonight, but I heard a promo for it today on the radio, so it's soon. Good, good. Good to know. Um. Well, Chuck, we're going to go even further back than the height of Huey Lewis's career. <laughs> we're going to go several thousand years before that. Okay. No, we'll go back to about the height of Huey Lewis's career, maybe a little before it, when I was a young lad, mm-hmm. and I was watching TV. And remember those Time Life books that we talked about here or there? Oh, yeah. Love them. So there was one set that um, it was like Mysteries of mankind or mysteries of history or something like that Mm -hmm. and i remember clearly it said how could ancient civilizations perform brain surgery and patients survive and there's this kind of like bearded almost caveman looking guy like Mm -hmm. with like a scar on his head and he looks at the camera like yeah i'm still alive but it hurts you know yeah i saw that and i went (gasps) it just (laughs) captured me right right well i came to find out that that was a real thing and that Apart from a lot of the stuff you find in Time Life books, it was correct. There's such a thing as trepanation, and people actually did survive it. Yeah, it was when did a, we talk about this in the lobotomies? I think so. Because I know we talked it had, about it. We, we had to have. Yeah. But trepanation has been around as a surgical procedure. It's brain surgery in that the brain is affected by it. Sometimes they went in and poked around. But for the most part, it was just cutting away a piece of the skull and the scalp to relieve pressure on the brain. Yeah. Right? And uh, they did the same thing in a much more sophisticated way these days. Sure. For, like, swelling of the brain. Right. And some traditional societies still carry out trepanation oh, really? today. Yeah. But um, as I said, it was successful. Some um, Andean cultures showed evidence of, like, an 80% success rate, which is pretty good as far as I know, 70%, right? Not bad. But this is a really ancient procedure. This is um, Neolithic, Right. 7,000 to 2,000 B.C. That's a long time ago. Yeah, that's like uh, four to 9,000 years ago. And if you think about that, four to 9,000 years ago, if they 
they could successfully, 70% of the time, they could successfully open your skull up. That's well, they could pretty do good. that with 100% success rate. Well, it was you have living. You. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but um, They could remove your heart. Right. They could do all kinds of things. Just pull it right out. 100% <laughs> success rate. But um, So trepanation is this ancient form of surgery. And about the same time, probably, people started figuring out that not only could they perform surgery, but if they wanted to, they could hang their shingle out and practice medicine if they knew what they were talking about with plants. Yeah. Right? That's right. So for a long time, we suspect uh, indigenous groups uh, had some sort of idea or understanding about what plants were, what, what plants could be used for. That's right. But then about 1500 BC, there was this explosion, Right. Yes, this was after the ancient Egyptians and pharaohs poked around and the Sumerians with uh, medicinal plants. Um, China, Africa, and India, mm-hmm. that's when it really exploded. And they actually started to uh, list these things and put them down on paper or whatever they were using at the time to, to papyrus. Well, in Egypt, in Chemite, if you want to be technical, there's a papyrus that's um, dated to 1553 B.C., Wow. That lists 700 different drugs. A lot of which are plant-based. Probably almost all, yeah. I would say so. They weren't doing synthetic chemicals back then, no, were they? No. But ab- about that same time, like you said, in Africa and India and China, yeah. like all these people started just jotting down their understandings of plants, and it was extensive, right? Yeah, like rub this on your uh, sore that, and it will ease your pain and suffering. <laughs> exactly. You know, so we should write that down. A lot of trial and error, right. I imagine. Isn't that Shaq's line from that Icy Hot ad? <laughs> Rub this there and it'll ease your pain. I think so. Do it. <laughs> um, Can you dig it? So so <laughs> these these this understanding, this knowledge was like added to and subtracted from, you know, over the course of centuries and then millennia. Yeah. And then about like the 19th century, there is like a sharp divergence, right? Yes, Josh. That is when, uh, in the first edition of the American Pharmacopoeia, early 1800s, um, drugs at the time were 70% plant-based. Flash forward 1960, only 5.3 were plant-based. So what happens is you've introduced people that could figure out how to synthetically duplicate a lot of these plants. Right. So are they still plant-based? Does that even count? Uh, after a while, I think it's kind of like, you know how people say like, this is made with um, our our product, not tested on animals. Right. That's because it uses stuff that's that was tested on animals thirty years ago and found safe. Okay, so, so it's you, no longer. Yeah, sure. So I think it's much the same way. Where once you synthesize something enough, or you know a synthetic alkaloid has this effect, you can use it in all these different ways gotcha. or with something else. Right. Well, that makes sense. So that was a that represented a real separation from uh, the West and traditional cultures, right? This, this medicinal rift mm-hmm. is what I just called it. Yeah. Which I kind of like. Medicinal rift? Yeah. Um, as our understanding of chemistry and the effects of drugs on the body grew, then, you know, we, we just kind of diverged from traditional societies. But there came to be an awareness at some point in time that all of these rainforests that were destroying and all of the um, uncontacted uh-huh. tribes that were running out um, – have a wealth of information yeah. that wasn't listed in these early uh, pharmacopias, right? Sure. That there's a bunch of understanding of how to cure all sorts of diseases out there, and we kind of need it. So out of that has grown this whole field, the sub 
discipline of anthropology called ethnobotany. Yeah, what was the Connery movie? They were searching for the cure for cancer in the jungle. Rangoon, Beyond Rangoon? <laughs> no, that was... Uh... Rangoon Man? No, <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. Attack of the Rangoons? It was uh, the lady from The Sopranos and Goodfellas and then Sean Connery, and he, he they were in the jungle, I think, searching for a cure for cancer or something. Good movie. But that's that's the point, though, is that the cure for cancer may be out there in some leaf that we just need to f- locate and synthesize. Right. The problem is, is like the field of ethnobotany isn't training people to go out and eat leaves and write down their thoughts on it. No, you got. I guess they're interviewing people, local tribesmen, indigenous folks, and saying, "Hey, tell us what you know about medicine, right. and maybe we can learn something from that." And this is a very, very long process. So, like a, a the an ethnobotanist is probably going to be a, a, somebody who was trained as a botanist in undergraduate school, sure, and then trained in um, anthropology. Uh, linguistics, um, possibly chemistry in grad school. Got to be a people person. Yeah, you have to be able to <laughs> chat it up with, yeah. with uh, possible head shrinkers. Sure. Um, and you go out in the field and you have to gain the trust of the people who have this information. It might not be common to the whole tribe. Yeah. Um, so you have to gain the trust of the person who knows what plant to use for what. And then get that information from them in a way that's agreeable. There's a uh, debate among ethnobotany that's pretty much resolved these days. But for a long time, the end justified the means. Like if you could cure yeah. athlete's foot, you know, with this plant, and so this guy that. doesn't want to give it to you, don't you have a moral obligation to basically take that information from him? Right. Steal it, as yeah. it were. Now there's a movement toward making sure that these people are, like their trust isn't broken. That they're willing to share it, and if they're not willing to share it, that you pay them. Pay them money. Pay pay them either way. Shekels. Com- compensation is is kind of becoming a more of a thing among <laughs> ethnobotanists <laughs> rather than good. thank you. You've done something great here. Bring in the trucks. Yeah. Uh, well, not only just what the plant is though, but obviously they need specifics. They need to know what part of the plant because, you know, I wrote that article a while back on how you can I think the universal ed- edibility test. You know, some parts of a plant like. Eat the leaf and you can sustain on it. Eat the root and you die in 10 seconds. Right. So what part of the plant, how much of it to use, um, which would essentially be the uh, prescription. Right. And so the ethnobotanist finds the stuff out, takes it back to the synthetic chemist who basically has to go over the, you know, hopefully the, the ethnobotanist is like, it's the leaves. Just focus on the leaves yeah. rather than. You know, having to do this on the plant and the stems and the seeds or the flowers or whatever. What a crazy job. Imagine how difficult that is. It is very difficult. To synthesize something like that. Well, first they have to isolate it. Yeah, they got to find out what it is. Because the, you know, the local shaman isn't, he's not going to be like, well, it's this alkaloid in there that's, um, you know, going to really get you off. Right, right. Um, (laughs) And by get off, we mean healing you. Exactly. (laughs) Um, it's the it's the synthetic chemist who isolates the active ingredient, right? And then figures out if they can put together a synthetic version of it, because one way to get medicine from plants is simple extraction, right? But yeah. that's not the most reliable. No, because you can extract, uh, let's say, the essential oils from one one bit, and it might be like really really potent, and another bit might not be. So it's not like. It's not consistent across the board. Right. And if one bit makes it into one jar of that stuff yeah. and the other bit makes it into one, somebody who's in pain is not going to get any relief. The other person <laughs> is going to die Yeah, because they're going to get like 80 times the Or feel really, dose. really good, yeah. depending on what happens. 
Um, so synth- synthesis is the um, artificial synthesis is the um, preferred means of of figuring out how to yeah. make a, a reasonable facsimile of this what's in the plant. You're trying to mimic the compound. Yeah, and I'm wondering, compound. like, if you make it and it's the same thing, it has the same molecular structure mm-hmm. as what's found in the plant, but you made it in the lab, it's still the same thing, right? It's like a test tube baby. Like, it, you're the the baby is still a real human. This is still a yeah. real compound. I guess on a molecular level, sure. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I thought so. Somebody much smarter than us probably is like, oh boys. I'll send you an email. Right. I'll let you know. I'm looking forward to that one, I have to say. Me too. Um, and cheapness is the other uh, reason. Cheapness? Expense? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it. Well, it's cheaper to synthesize something. Yeah. Once you figure it out, I'm sure it's a very long, expensive process. But sure. once you figure it out, you're like, oh, yeah, you put a couple of hydrogens in with that um, helium and want to stand back. Yeah, and, and better for the environment, too. Like, if something has to stay plant-based, you're going to need a lot of that plant. That's true. You know what I'm saying? So we have a lot of success stories in um, synthesizing drugs from plants, right? Quinine, mm-hmm. a part of one of my favorite drinks. Uh, gin and tonic? You know it. Quinine's pretty, uh, across the board, a, a pretty awesome thing, I guess. Yeah. That's why tonic water is called tonic water, because it has quinine in it. Yeah. And it's a tonic for malaria. Yeah. It's very small amount, but I guess it gives it that signature taste. And don't go with the diet. It's awful. There's a, oh, diet tonic? Oh, yeah. It's not very good. No, you know, I good. taste that as super bitter. Remember we when we did the How Taste Works uh-huh. article? I figured out that I am a super taster of bitterness. Huh. Like, I can barely tolerate tonic water. It's so bitter. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And Campari, don't even get me started. But sometimes I torture myself and just have some anyway. And have Campari yeah. and, uh, and tonic? I've never mixed <laughs> it with tonic. I think my head would explode. <laughs> So quinine is used to treat malaria right. based on the chinchona bark. Then you got, let's say, another example, dioxin. I'm sorry, digoxin, uh, treating heart conditions, and that comes from the lovely foxglove. The lovely, lovely foxglove that you grow in your garden. We do grow it in my garden, although my foxglove is dead right now. It's kind of depressing. Is it? Yes, it is. Very dead. Oh, no, I meant depressing. Yeah, of course. So look at dead plants. <laughs> it's awful. Why? Are you not watering it frequently? Nah, I don't know what the deal was with the fox glove. It might not have it. transplanted it soon enough, or it might not do well in 110 heat index heat. Huh. Even Is if it you're in watering enough it. shade? Um, sort of shady. Emily, Emily's the gardener. I'm just the gotcha. gardener's assistant. I gotcha. The heavy lifter. Uh, another great example that you listed. This is your article, right? Yeah. Okay. Is uh, morphine. Yeah. The alkaloid from poppy plants was synthesized into diacetyl morphine and sold commercially by Bayer for 12 years as heroin. Yeah, that's where heroin came from. Called heroin. Yeah. I'm just going to go to the drugstore and get some heroin. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And <laughs> what's what's crazy is the, the heroin that's created today, you can make a case, is... Um, Synthesized every time a batch is made, because it's it's derived from the opium poppy, but then you screw with it a little bit to make something different, slightly different. Yeah. So, um, but yes, Bear invented heroin. Wow, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, and then Bear also invented aspirin, which is derived from willow bark. That's right. And are you going to say uh, acetosalic acid? Nice. Okay. Good going. <laughs> that one. That's aspirin. But what, a, what, what's the natural compound? 
Um, Salison? Yeah, Salison. Um, and that was, the, that was, everybody's known about Willow Bark for, at least since Hippocrates, who wrote about it. Um, and he was a Greek, and he lived in probably like the third century BC, fourth century BC. Yeah. I, always, wish, <laughs> I wish we used zero more in this culture. It's so screwy. I know, but I love it. Anytime you're trying to place a time like this, you always kind of give this look up like you're trying to remember hanging out with that person. <laughs> right. Like fourth century. No, I think that was third century, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was, I mean, it was an anti-inflammatory and a fever reducer way Still back is. then. Still is. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things when you people that poo-poo Eastern medicine and things. It's like a lot of the stuff we use today is just a synthesized version of rubbing bark on your face. And a lot, a lot, a lot more than you'd think. L-DOPA, which is used to treat Parkinson's, derived from a plant. Yeah. Um, there's a whole awesome list. If you if you search um, uh, plant-synthesized drugs or drug-synthesized plants in a search engine, I think the first result's going to be this list from, like, the year 2000. Of modern drugs that were derived from plants. Yes, and possibly my all-time favorite, Valium, was derived from valerian root, which oh, I true. found out and just started taking a lot of valerian root. <laughs> no, you can make a tea from it, and it's... Uh, Does it chill you out? Really? Yeah. I'm going to have to do that. It it will knock you out, too. If you really? <laughs> valerian tea? concentrated. Wow. But it stinks to high heaven, and I want to COA right now. I am not in any way, shape, or form recommending anyone try anything that I ever say that I do, ever. Even like valerian this. root tea? That's like that's in a supplement store, right? It is, but you know what? That's funny you're saying that because I was listening to why doesn't the FDA regulate herbs? Yeah. And we had this conversation right. that it's like because it's in a natural food store, doesn't mean we just think that it's like, yeah. oh, it's fine. It's harmless. Right. But you could totally OD on any number of things in a natural yeah. food store. It's because the FDA doesn't regulate it that it appears harmless even though it is. Creatine bulk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this brings up a point, Josh, that I think have always believed that the there is no disease that wherein the cure is not somewhere on the planet earth oh is that you, you believe that i've always thought that and this you know this is true look at all like every plant that is eventually synthesized into medicine mm-hmm. i think the answers are all out there it's just a matter it's of like finding a, them it's god's great scavenger hunt yeah maybe so yeah i like that idea okay <laughs> I've been hitting you with the humdingers lately, haven't I? Yes, you are. So you can kind of see aspirin's been around for a while. Heroin's been around for a while. Tonic's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still making stuff from plants. But we've also figured out another way to use plants for medicine, and that's to use like uh, enzymes from the plants as catalysts in uh, chemical yeah. reactions. Use cells as little Petri dishes almost? Yeah, basically if you want to carry out a... a um, uh, um, a chemical reaction in a safe environment, inject it into a plant cell. It's a great little house for it. And they're little uh, factories. They make all sorts of stuff we need in chemical reactions to synthesize drugs. Yeah. So they help in all sorts of ways. So up with plants. Yes, but not just plants, Chuck. Uh, not just plants that we might like to just chew on once in a while, like valerian, right? Yeah. But also poisons for, for just as long as... Um, medicinal plants have been used as drugs. We've also used poisons as well. Yeah, that papyrus uh, you were talking about from uh, Luxor, Egypt, 
uh, that listed all the drugs and plant-based drugs. It also listed a lot of poisons and a lots of uh, a lot of antidotes to those poisons. Yeah, because I mean, once we figured out there's such a thing as poison, we started looking for ways to cure them, right? And that kind of follows your uh, your logic that um, there's you know there's an antidote to every poison. Yeah, right. For every malady, I, I believe that, and not because of any like deep research, but just because of things like this, and because I think the Earth is structured that way. Yes, balance. Right. But even before that, um, uh, homeostasis. Yes. Even before that, papyrus, though, about fifteen hundred years before it, there was a, a Chemite Egyptian pharaoh named uh, Menes. And he was the first person documented to conduct research into poisons. Yeah, because they killed people with poison for years. Yeah. Socrates was famously killed in 399 B.C. That was the 4th century. I wonder how they first discovered that some poisons could actually heal you. Uh, I don't know. Maybe by killing someone, maybe right before they died, they were like, geez, my back feels great all of a sudden. Right. (laughs) And they're like, oh. And then they die. Yeah. I don't know. Just an idea. Um. We have had a lot of uh, harebrained ideas of what can cure you. Yeah. Like um, whiskey to cure a snake bite, right? Yeah, if you're in the Old West. Pour some whiskey on it. Right. So in the 1920s, some Brazilian um, researchers put that to the test and found that not only is it patently untrue, but it actually makes things worse. Yeah, speeds up the, the blood flow. Yeah, the, the alcohol the does. <laughs> so the delivery of the venom is just... Much quicker. Yeah, I think the whiskey remedy I would choose is, here, drink a lot of this because you've been bitten by a snake and you're going to die. Right. So you might as well just numb the pain. Yeah. And no one no one ever had a patient where it actually worked. They just heard of a patient where it worked. That's right. Right. Um, but the same Brazilian doctors came up with a, a, a way to cure a snake bite, didn't they? Yeah, and this is amazing to me, too. Everyone knows about uh, antivenin, which most people call antivenom. It's venin. It is. Although I think I've seen venom is acceptable now because so many people use it or something. Well, some of our linguist friends, the more progressive ones, are like, just let language go where it's going. Exactly. Um, Decimate, for instance. (laughs) Uh, What they found out was they can use poison to fight poison. So by injecting uh, a snake's venom into something large that can take it, like a horse, (laughs) it would build up an immune system. I bet there was some trial and error there, too. Yeah. But I'll, I can't just see where they're like uh, they they inject the horse with some venom and go around to its face and punch it and they're like <laughs> take it. <laughs> so uh, they would inject it into the horse, punch him in the face, <laughs> and then the horse would eventually, you know, build up an immunity and produce antibodies called antivenin. And right. then they would extract that from the horse, extract like, the hemoglobin from boom. the blood. Now we got an antivenin that we can use on humans. Right. And so those the antivenin, those antibodies, when somebody is bit by a snake, when you use the antivenin that's derived from that snake, snake's venom, mm-hmm. uh, those antibodies go into to the human, find the antibodies or find the venom and cling to it so that it can't do anything. It's like get off me. Yeah. No, I'll never let you go. Come and I want to know how that first started too. That's who was the first person that thought maybe this poison that kills us can heal us. Uh, these Brazilian doctors were the first ones. Uh, so let's inject it into a horse and just see. It's well, just amazing to have that spark of idea. logical because think about it. I mean, it's so massive. No, no, that makes sense. But just the initial idea, the spark of curiosity, which we always talk about, it's, it's pretty amazing. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Chuck, if you, this is, uh, no one knows this yet. 
this is the big secret, but this podcast, this episode is based on two articles. Mm-hmm. And did you find the common thread between the two articles? Um, Sean Connery? No. Willy Nilly. <laughs> I used <laughs> Willy Nilly in both <laughs> articles. You say that a lot, though. That's I can see that. But did you know Willy Nilly's hyphenated? I, I did. Yeah. I thought it was capitalized like uh, a name. Just the Willy part is capitalized. <laughs> it's Willy Nilly. <laughs> So these Brazilian doctors figured that out, right? Mm-hmm. They were not the first to figure out that, hey, this thing that kills me could also make heal me stronger. Me. Right. Yes. In a certain way. At the very least, it, this is very, um, uh, this part using poisons, right, to cure other problems is very logical. It's saying this poison does this, mm-hmm. and this malady does the opposite. So if you apply this poison to this malady, it should bring you back to... Homeostasis. Yeah. Hopefully. Which is what we're all searching for. And one of the first guys to, to follow this reasoning to the very dangerous conclusion of, here, take this deadly nightshade, um, was a Scottish researcher named Thomas Fraser. Are you going to try this word? Uh, acetylcholine sterase inhibitor. Wow. Thank you. You practiced that one. That was the first time I said it out loud, although I mouthed it a few times. Well, he used atropine as that. Thing that you just said. That's found in uh, Deadly Nightshade, Belladonna, uh-huh. a very potent hallucinogen, um, a very dangerous poison as well. And this atropine, which is an active ingredient in uh-huh. it, uh, contains an alkaloid that this um, Thomas Fraser figured out combats the, um, the effects of anthrax. Yeah. So anthrax and sarin gas, similarly, they're both nerve toxins. And the way that they kill you, this is horrible. I know. I know. It's unbelievable. So, like, you have this thing called acetylcholine sterase. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a normal, it's a normal enzyme in your body that um, basically tells your neurons to fire. Mm-hmm. Your nerves fire because it says, hey, go fire. Um, and it breaks down naturally. What sarin and anthrax do is they prevent it from being broken out, and it just hangs out in your synapses. And tells your nerves to keep firing and firing and firing, and your body just overloads on electrical charges. Yeah, and you die very painfully. Very painfully, because you feel everything, because all the nerves in your body are firing way more than they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, So what what Scottish physician Thomas Fraser figured out is that atropine is an acetylcholine sterase inhibitor. So it goes in and basically binds the receptors where the acetylcholine sterase would normally bind its, the, itself, mm-hmm. and hence atropine, this poison, can prevent the effects of anthrax and sarin, and that's still used today. Ironically, from the deadly nightshade plant. Yeah. The the whole concept of using poison as medicine is just dripping with irony. It is. It is, Josh. Um, another uh, thing they're doing these days at the University of Buffalo is they are using um, Chilean tarantula, rose tarantula, to combat heart attack death. Mm-hmm. So cell walls have these little channels that open when the cell stretches, and they uh, basically help to contract and release your heart muscles. Right. Or probably just contract. Well, they, they channel the ions through. These are ion channels. So yeah. The, the ions give it the electrical signal, so it's part of the pumping. Right. But if these things get too wide, there will be too many positive ions, and that is basically what could potentially lead to a heart attack. Right, because it throws off the rhythm. Yeah. And, and you your heart attack is, is just... Um, an arrhythmic heartbeat. So this tarantula venom binds to these channels and blocks it from passing through and potentially saves people from heart attacks, tarantula venom. Yeah. 
And scorpions. Yeah, I told you that I knew someone who was undergoing that therapy. We talked about that in the what's the most venomous creature on uh-huh. Earth one. I thought we did. Yeah, and I tried to find research on him today to see if he is still fighting. Yeah, his and? fight with cancer, and I could not find out. But there is a guy I could ask. Okay, and uh, I got a lot of hope. This guy was a big inspiration for me. Well, that's good. Let yeah. me know. Let everybody know. I will. Unless it's bad news, and then I will just not speak of it again. (laughs) But what we were talking about is scorpion venom uh, is being used to treat, uh, in his case, brain brain cancer, the Israeli yellow scorpion. And it has a protein that binds itself to uh, cancerous cells found in gliomas. And that is brain cancer, actually. Yeah. And it, it basically keeps it from replicating itself, keeps these cells from spreading. Well, it it does, and they also figured out that you can uh, attach a um, basically a radioactive iodine to this venom, the protein found in the venom, and so the venom goes and seeks out the glioma, and it brings with it along for the ride this radioactive iodine. And as we all know, cancer cells don't like radiation, so it basically seeks and destroys. Now it's like this, a vehicle for it. It is. Is this the uh, iron o- oxide nanoparticles? I don't know. All right, here's the deal. This is what I got. Chlorotoxin is the chemical that affects the protein, and the protein is what helps spread the cancer. This is new, I think. They have a new study where they got uh, chemically bonded iron oxide nanoparticles. Okay. They put that with the lab-made version of the chlorotoxin, Okay. and they created these nanoprobes. Each nanoprobe can carry 20 chlorotoxin molecules. Did they paint like a 40s pinup girl on the front of each <laughs> so, one? That's basically what it is. So a, a tumor cell uptakes a single nanoparticle. It's absorbing a lot of this chlorotoxin at once. So basically they did this on, on mice and they found that uh, with the nanoparticles that they're, or the nanoprobes that they're using, um, it fights the, the, the tumor by 98% compared to 45% wow. of just the venom. So I, I guess they've given it a little super car yeah that can hold a lot of this stuff in the trunk that is really cool yeah good up with mice huh up with mice up with scorpion venom yeah down with cancer right well uh you got anything else i do not i don't either chuck i think uh this turned out better than i thought oh yeah i had this turned out exactly how i hoped it would really yeah, I thought it was going to be great, and it was. That was very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to check out these two articles, you can type in poison medicine and plant medicine into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and that will bring both of them up, along with a bunch of other cool stuff in our wonderful search page. Um, and since I said search bar, you know that means it's time for what? Facebook question and answer session. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Chuck. We do this from time to time, Josh. We throw it on Facebook. Hey, ask us anything. We'll zip through as many of these as we can in the next couple of episodes. I like how people do ask us anything and then we ignore it. Yeah. A lot of it. Save these, by the way, because we may not be done with these. I printed them out for us. Go ahead. You take the first one. Uh, this one's from Cyrus Brohas. That's how I'm going to pronounce his name. Uh... Do you guys really have cubes right next to each other at the office? Not only do we have cubes right next to each other now, Chuck, you moved, and we're like, we don't share a wall anymore, but there's nothing but open space between us. Yeah, I'm behind you, and you are behind me. We're like five feet from one another. 
Yeah. So I, I, um, she did not like it first. <laughs> it was not. It's not that I disliked it. It was just weird, man. Yeah, it sure. was so weird. Um, so now I spend my days just kind of staring at Chuck while he researches and things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is from Emily Tran. Uh, what has been your most interesting or memorable dream to date? Um, I, Emily, have celebrity dreams all the time where I am really good buddies with Larry David or Jack Black really? or whoever my heroes are. That's awesome. And they're really realistic and I always wake up and, and very disappointed huh. that that's not the case. You have, you have some friendships with some of your heroes these days, don't you? Yeah, sure, but not Larry David. Not Larry Jack David. Jack Black yet. Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. Um, what about you? Got a memorable dream? Yeah, I do. I don't remember the dream, but um, I'm going to bring Yumi in here on this one. She tells me that uh, for three nights in a row, <laughs> I would sit up and point like at the ceiling and be like, what's that kid doing up there? And she'd be like, what are you talking about? And That's we'd very scarily look. And there'd be nothing there, of course. And she'd be like, what do you mean? And I'd go, uh, nothing. Just go back to sleep. And I have no recollection of it whatsoever. Wow. Your house might be haunted, dude. I have no idea what that dream was or anything like that. So, But there's Jeez. a kid like in our ceiling That's for scary. three nights in a row. Uh, Tom Blake, there's a bustle in my hedgerow. What should I do? I think everyone knows the answer. Don't be alarmed. Yeah, technically that's a first step, though. That's like, first don't be alarmed, then something. Right, so what comes after that? I don't know. We'll have to ask uh, Jimmy Page. Or maybe Robert Plant wrote that. I say go back inside. Go into your house. Okay. And beware the child on the ceiling. Uh, What country would you like to live in other than the States? I've always wanted to live in Spain. I think Spain would be really neat to live in. Oh, yeah? Although their government is in so much turmoil, and they have like a whole separatist region. Um... If everybody could just mellow out in Spain, I'd, I'd move there. I would drop out. You'd never hear from me again. I'd be on some island or something. Would you do island living? Oh, yeah. I could do island living as well if it had electricity and all that stuff. Yeah. Like, it'd have to be a rich guy's island. Okay. A rich guy's island. Yeah. Um, let me see. What is your favorite thing? This is Jason Carpenter. What is your favorite thing a listener has ever sent you in the mail? Uh, beer ranks pretty high up there. Um, yeah. Beef jerky, little little bit sweets. Yeah, I, I always like seeing that package arrive. The honeycombs one. Did you have those? Yeah, that I think was that's good. That's my all time favorite little bit sweets candy. It's so good. Coffee, you've gotten coffee. Gotten coffee. Yeah, the beef jerky was really high up there. It's like buds, smoked meats or something. Since yeah, it was yeah. from a, a listener out in California. Oh, that lady that printed her photographs on the paper that she made. Oh, that's cool. That was pretty neat. Yeah. We get lots of cool stuff. It's we hard. do. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Fan-made uh, mugs were pretty awesome. Oh, uh, yeah. still use that. Unicorn Tears. I like those. Joe Garden's book. Yeah. That was nice. We get a bunch of cool stuff. It's tough to really separate it out. Because we've gotten some cool postcards even, right? Yeah. And I want to say my last one, um, the last one I wrote from Jeanette C. Patrick, I realized I forgot to ask or All tell right. her that. Tell what do we got time for? A couple more? Yeah. Maybe, how about one more each? Okay. Uh, classic debate, power to be invisible or fly. Um, I would fly. I don't think I'd want to know what most people have to say about me when I'm not around. Yeah, I would fly too, because that means I wouldn't have to fly commercially anymore, which is something I hate passionately. Okay. And that one, by the way, was um, Shannon McCann. Thanks for that one. I'm going to finish up with Melissa Rosenthal. Uh, when you were children, what were your favorite books? Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Um, I am going to say generally anything by Shel Silverstein when I was young, young. 
into my little tween years, I got really into Bloom County, the comic. Got all those books. Yep. And then my favorite book, though, the first book I ever read, really read, uh, was when I was like eight or nine. I read The Great Christmas Kidnapping Caper. Mm. And it was uh, released in 1978, award-winning children's book about these mice that live in Macy's in New York. Yeah, that and sounds cool. Santa Claus is kidnapped, and they have to figure it out and, and crack the case. Why is everybody always kidnapping Santa Claus? I don't know, but I have no idea why this hasn't been a, like a Disney movie. Yeah. It was uh, excellent. I read it every year for like 7 to 12. Nice. And it was really good. What's yours? Uh, probably my favorite little kid's book was Hooper Humperdinck, Not Him, which is uh, yeah. in that Dr. Seuss camp. But not a Dr. Seuss book, you know what I'm talking about? Sure. Um, I read a lot of Richard Scarry and Berenstain Bears. And then as I got a little older, I read Ramona Quimby books for years. Oh, really? Loved those. Never things. read those. We both did Encyclopedia Brown, too. Yeah. Those yeah, are, he was cool. I'll always remember he knew that that one kid was fake crying. And that he was the culprit because the kid put fake tears like on the outside of his eyes, but you always cry <laughs> from the does. inside. Yeah. What a dumb kid. Everyone knows that. Well, a lot of the kids he grappled with were pretty stupid. Yeah, that's true. I'd like to read those today and see if I can figure them out. Oh, I'll bet you'd just be like, I can't read this. You think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have questions for us, you can always post them on Facebook, facebook.com slash stuff you should know. Um, you can also tweet to us at SYSK Podcast, and um, you can reach us regular snail email uh, at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?